everyone, and welcome to the True Path Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Today, we are in session eight of our study in 1 Peter, and we're discussing chapter three, verses 13 through 22. So last session, we ended with the importance of seeking and pursuing peace from verse 11 and living lives of sympathy, compassion, and humility. And we can nurture and grow in these ways because God's eyes are upon the righteous and he hears our prayers from verse 12. And now Peter in verses 13 through 22, he continues this thought by saying, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So, who will harm you if you're devoted to doing what's good, verse 13 says. Now, as a general rule, people committed to doing good don't often get into as much trouble as those who do evil. Most of the time, no one will harm someone who's doing good. But there are times, and we all know of some, when good people do suffer. When we suffer difficulty or suffer for righteousness. But when we do, we don't have to fear or be intimidated, verse 14 tells us, because we are blessed. Matthew 10:28 says, "Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell." And I mean, if someone is ridiculing us or worse because we're trying to do something good and right and positive that would bring honor and glory to our God, well, let's take a moment and consider the source. I mean, what kind of person would bring harm to someone who's trying to do the right thing? If a person is trying to dismantle goodness, if a person is attempting to bring down glory to God, then there's something wrong with that person. Ungodly people behave in ungodly ways, and Christians often suffer because of it. But again, consider the source, because oftentimes a person who is instigating the fear and suffering of good people are usually afraid themselves of losing their power, their authority, their control. A person who does evil to others is totally focused on themselves. So bringing difficulty to someone else is strictly to preserve their own self-worth. They have an inner need to be accepted, empowered, and their greatest fear is losing that power, that control. But we don't have to fear them or be intimidated by them 
We don't have to be afraid of what they can do to us because where do we derive our self-worth? From God. And he tells us that we are loved and accepted and blessed. Isaiah 8, 12 and 13 says, Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard the Lord as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. And we can do this because we've been blessed. From the Greek, it means fortunate, privileged. So we can keep pressing on in the face of undeserved ridicule or scorn because our good deeds do not go unnoticed by our Heavenly Father. And the best way not to be afraid is to follow verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So we are to replace our fear with Christ as the Lord in our hearts. To regard Christ as the Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, that means to set him apart. I mean, in my opinion, every person has a ruler that they follow. Everybody follows something or someone. In Matthew 12:30, Jesus tells us plainly, and anyone who is not with me is against me. So for those who do not follow Christ, by default, who do they follow? Satan. I mean, they would never admit this, of course, but there's no middle ground on this issue. So if we want to not be frightened of those who can harm us, and if we want to be able to offer defense for why we believe what we believe, then we must set Christ apart in our lives. He must be our one and only Lord. And we must be ready at any time, the text says, to give a defense to anyone who asks about the hope within us. Now, why is that necessary? Well, because if we're applying the biblical truths to our lives, like living lives of sympathy and compassion, being loyal citizens, respecting others, even those who oppose us, then God already told us in verse 2.12 that unbelievers are watching us. So when they see that we still have hope and peace in the midst of such dire circumstances, then they're going to have to ask what's going on. So he's encouraging us to be ready to tell them where our hope lies. And the tone here is pretty certain, always be ready. At any moment, you may have an opportunity to share your faith with someone because our actions are so different than the world expects. So may we stay grounded in God's word and sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading so we don't miss those opportunities when they come our way. And in verse 16, it says, we need to respond with gentleness and respect so that our conscience stays clear, so that those who accuse us and disparage us will be put to shame. Our conscience in this context is in regard to the ability to distinguish between what is morally good and bad. One commentator describes our conscience as a window that lets in the light of God's truth. Having a clear conscience means that even if those around us are accusing us of doing wrong, we aren't being convicted by God of doing wrong. Now, we see a good example of this in Acts chapter 22 and 23, when Paul is brought, brought before the Sanhedrin after being beaten by the Jews because they mistakenly accused him of bringing Greeks into the temple, thus defiling it. 
And Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin and says, I have lived my life in good conscience to this day. So even though the Jewish people, his people, wanted to kill him for doing what they thought was wrong, he was free from guilt. His conscience was clear before God. In verse 17, it says, it's better for suffering for suffering It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And why? Because Jesus did. Verse 18 tells us, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered and died because of our sins. He took the punishment for our sins that we deserved. And because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the one and only perfect substitute for us, there would never be a need for any other sacrifice to be made. Jesus' payment of his life on the cross of Calvary covered every person's every sin and would never need to be repeated. It was one time for all people so that we might be brought to God by accepting his gift of salvation and placing our faith and trust in him. Jesus suffered for doing good for a reason, so that you and I might be brought to God. And so if we follow in his steps, which we are to do according to verse 221, then our suffering for doing good is also for a reason. Now, we may not always know what that reason is, but we can trust that God is at work in the midst of our suffering. And Peter's already shown us some of the positive things that can happen when good people suffer. It can prove the genuineness of our faith and result in praise, glory, and honor to God from verse 1-7. It can lead unbelievers to the faith from verse 2-12. And we will be blessed by God because of it in verse 3-9. And I think this is an important reminder because I think it's sometimes easier to handle suffering if it's because of something that we did to cause it. I mean, everybody understands the idea of getting what you deserve. Everybody understands having to pay the consequences. I mean, it's hard paying the consequences of our bad actions, but it's understandable. It's justified. We did wrong, so we have to pay for it. But when we have to pay for something that we did not do, that's when it's not only difficult, but it's incomprehensible. And I think God is telling us through Peter that he's there with us during these times, and he's still involved. And he's going to bring good from it if we will trust him with it. Now, the end of verse 18 through verse 20, it says, He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, that is, eight people were saved through water. So there are differing opinions among theologians as to what Peter means when he says in which Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. Now, there's one thing scholars do seem to agree on with these verses, that these are some of the most difficult verses to understand in the entire Bible. Even the great Martin Luther says of this passage, It is a wonderful text, but one of the most obscure in the New Testament, so that I don't know for certain just what Peter means. So if great biblical minds like Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon admit to the obscurity of these verses, then it's obvious we're sure not going to be able to come to any definitive conclusion here. 
However, there are still truths to be gleaned and lessons to be learned from this passage. And incidentally, the fact that theologians have different interpretations of a passage doesn't make God less in my mind. It makes God more. The fact that humans cannot understand everything about God means that he is so much greater and bigger than mere human understanding. He is beyond mere human capabilities, beyond mere human understanding. So that means he is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise, and he is worthy of our respect. The fact that there are some some of God's words that we don't understand should also encourage us to keep studying, because the more we study, the more we learn. And one more point before we tackle the text. Sometimes when we encounter a passage um, of scripture that have various interpretations by scholars, there can be the temptation to assume that the passage is wrong or there's a mistake in it. But we must always keep in mind as we read that the entire canon of Scripture is the inspired Word of God, and it is infallible. Peter knew exactly what he meant when he wrote that Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. And God knows what he meant when he inspired Peter to write it. So I will give you the results of my study, but ultimately it's up to you and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to determine the meaning of God's Word. So, who are these spirits in prison that Jesus went and preached or made proclamation to in verse 19? And how were they disobedient while God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared? Well, some theologians believe that these spirits are fallen angels who are in hell. And after Christ was crucified, he descended into hell to proclaim his victory over them, over Satan and his followers. Another view, scholars hold, is that the spirits refer not to fallen angels, but to people, the spirits of human beings who lived during the days of Noah. And so the spirit of Christ was in Noah as he preached and proclaimed God to them, the spirits of the disobedient people in Noah's day. They didn't listen to Noah's message, and so they are now in prison in hell. God waited patiently for them while the ark was being built, And they had every opportunity. For 120 years, according to Genesis 6-3, God waited for them to turn to him, and they still rejected him, thus sealing their fate in prison, which is hell. Now, whether you hold to the first view or the second view, I really think that's the point, that God is long-suffering and doesn't want anyone to be condemned to hell. So God sometimes uses our trials to lead others to him. Noah was a righteous man and continued to follow God in a world that was filled with corruption. People in Noah's day were so bad that Genesis 6-5 says that human wickedness had become so great that every inclination of people, every inclination of their thoughts and hearts was only evil all the time. So it's not too hard to imagine the kind of ridicule scorn and harassment that Noah probably endured. Yet he continued to follow God. Noah was an example of godliness to his community. The Lord was using Noah to share God with them, to give them a chance to repent and turn away from their evil ways and become followers of God themselves. And the same is true for us. 
God is using us, Christians, to share his good news of salvation to our community. We should endure and continue following Jesus, even in the midst of difficulty, because we may be the only examples of Christ our neighbors are seeing right now, just like it was with Noah. And just as this text implies, judgment is coming. Just like in the days of Noah, the unrighteous will be destroyed and the righteous will be spared. Verse 20 says, In it, meaning the ark, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. And in verses 21 and 22, it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as with the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So Peter's saying that the flood corresponds to baptism. Just like the flood was a symbol of God's judgment on evil mankind, yet eight people were spared, saved from God's wrath because of their belief in him, the same is true of baptism. It is a symbol of God's judgment on sinful humankind. Yet Jesus is the sacrifice. And when we accept his sacrifice for our own sinfulness, we become right with God. We can have a good conscience toward him because we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Now, we must be clear here. It's not the act of baptism that saves a person. I mean, baptism is merely a symbol of salvation. It symbolizes Jesus' death and resurrection and symbolizes our death to our old sinful ways before salvation and our new life and relationship with Jesus after salvation. And salvation is only made possible because of Jesus' resurrection, according to verse 21. And now Jesus is in heaven at God's right hand, and all angels, authorities, and powers are subject to him. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. Jesus has conquered all the evil hosts of Satan. He sits at God's right hand and triumphs over it all. Now, wait a minute, you might be thinking. If Jesus has triumphed over Satan and his demons and they are subject to him, then why are Satan and his demons still wreaking havoc on the world, and why do we still have to contend with them? Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of darkness, and against evil spiritual forces. So why do we have to struggle with them if Jesus has claimed victory? Well, I like what one of my commentaries says about this. It says, As Christians, we do not fight for victory but from victory. Christians fight from a position of victory. Although our struggle continues while on earth, our ultimate victory is sure. I think it's like when God gave the Jews the promised land. God assured them that the land he ordained for them was theirs, but yet they still had to go in and take it. Although the land was given to them by God, they still had to fight for it in order to destroy the evil and idolatry that was rampant in the land. It was a way to testify to the world of the mighty power of God, and it was a warning to others who try to thwart his will. So when we put on the armor of God described in Ephesians 6 and go against the works of Satan, we too testify to a watching world that there is a better way, and every battle we wage and win strengthens us. 
That is why Ephesians 6 tells us that we can stand against the works of the devil if we put on the full armor of God. We can stand and be victorious against the devil's schemes, but only with God's armor, because he sits in victory over Satan. Therefore, his armor is the only armor that's going to work. So our challenge for this week is to read through Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, and praise the Lord for the spiritual tools that we have at our disposal. And let's pray that we never take them for granted. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.